It's possible to do what I did, and it may not be by 40, depending on how old you are listening to this now. It takes some planning. It takes learning some information about your finances. It takes confronting your finances. But that's what it looks like for me now. Like the concept that I describe it as being able to retire by 40 is really the freedom to choose to do things that I wouldn't have done otherwise that were certainly not Asian parent approved. Heyo, welcome to the Asian Detox Podcast, the podcast where we boldly reclaim Asian American prosperity. We have relatable conversations about how being Asian American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Wei, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage while enjoying a life of ease and alignment. And you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. I'm on track to retire by 40. Usually when I tell people this, they all lean in and they go, tell me more. And what I imagine goes unspoken is that in the back of their head, they're probably thinking something like, well, of course, because Asians are good at math, which means they're good at money and that's all they care about. So this makes sense. Okay, well, let's talk about it. None of my friends will actually say that to my face. Only one of them pointed it out as a stereotype that I totally forgot existed because I live in Arizona and I don't interact with other Asians very much. So this whole Asians love to talk about money, let's talk about it. My parents are immigrants. They came over to the United States in their early 30s to go get their master's degree and They arrived with some English because they had to pass an exam in order to prove that they had good English. And in a time where they had no internet, no way of learning about our currency system, our banking system, how to invest, all of those things, and also no friends. Actually, my mom recently told me that flight to America, that over 14-hour flight, was her first time on an airplane. So when I say my parents are immigrants, I'm saying they started with almost nothing. They had their brains. They're very smart people, but they weren't book smart in the traditional sense. They actually, my dad didn't get into university in Taiwan. He went to technical school and my mom never had straight A's. She barely even got A's. She was a B and C student. So I actually remember my mom telling me uh, that I have good genes, so I should be good at a lot of things or that I should be smart. And my child brain was like, yeah, but you already told me that you got B's and C's in school. So you're like contradicting yourself here. But all that's to say that like they started with almost nothing as far as net worth in America. My grandmother helped them pay for some of their grad school. And then my dad got a TA job and started supporting them that way. And then there was every chance that they would go home to Taiwan because the goal in China and Taiwan is typically to come to America to get a degree. And then whether or not you stay is irrelevant. It's the degree that matters. It's more prestigious. It's considered a better education. And for various reasons, it really is uh, because America has more well-rounded education. But 
the fact that they stayed in America was kind of a chance. They moved to California, and my dad, on the last day of the timeline that he had set for himself, got a job. So my parents stayed and decided that it was a good place to raise us. We weren't born yet, but that was their their forward thinking, right? They wanted children. And at the end of the day, there's a lot that goes into it. They did the thing where they went to flea markets and bought all of their stuff secondhand. My mom cut coupons. She got into credit card reward points. And they turned their first house into a rental property. And my mom got into stock investing. So all of this added up. It actually turned out that my parents could retire early. In addition to the fact that they actually helped fund my brother and myself going to college. So that's where I come from, is that my Asian immigrant parents figured it out, especially without the internet. They learned how to use the internet. They leverage all of that. My dad had a great job as the principal computer architect at a tech company. Uh, my mom worked part-time as a paraeducator. And between the two of them, they've paid off both of their houses and they've got a great stock portfolio where my mom is still complaining about being in the highest tax bracket, even though they're retired. So I wanted to give that context because that is all part of my money story. That yeah, Asians talk about money. So we talked about it at home. It wasn't something that was a taboo subject that nobody talked about. Uh, we didn't pass on any stories about constantly being in debt. Um, we actually never bought a car with a loan. Um, in fact, we never bought a car brand new until I got my car when I was 21 because my mom decided I needed to have a new car for the sake of having a safer car because I would have to drive it from California to Arizona for 13 hours. So she was very anxious about that. So I grew up in what was a very frugal Asian household where you didn't ask for things that you didn't actually need. All that mattered was that you study that anything education-wise paid for. Like a computer to do my homework, paid for. Fancy calculators, paid for. Tutors, summer classes, nerd camp, all of those things, high priority. Everything else, no. You don't need that. You, you're going to get it from like a garage sale if you really want it. Um, that is the lifestyle I lived with. And it was very much a scarcity mindset, but it was what worked. And it's actually like, I'm very grateful because it got me to where I am today. Even though these days I talk about living your abundant life and choosing abundance over scarcity is only possible because I started with scarcity and I have those tools that if at any given point I'm feeling poor or I feel like I could use some cash or I want to save up for something big, I have those tools for how to save in my tool belt. And what does that look like for me? Well, I think it's pretty typical that Somewhere in your 20s, you try to like leave behind your parents and you try to live your own life and have some fun and you're focusing on whatever it is you're doing. So for me, that was college. And I didn't really think too hard about like how to set myself up well financially. What I did think about when I was applying to colleges is that it was 2009 when I graduated high school. So we were in the middle of a recession. And my dad actually turned to me and was like, even though we're saving for your college, um, we actually can't afford for you to go to private school. So if you want to go to private school, you're going to have to get a scholarship. And I took that information and I put it up against the fact that my dad made enough money that uh, we didn't count as low income. 
we were very firmly at the top of like middle class, like upper middle class rank. And that's usually not considered a financial need category. And my grades were not so amazing that I was going to get it on merit. So I took that as a, you shouldn't even apply for private school, which was kind of ironic because what actually happened after that was I had taken the PSAT and scored so well on it. I must have some kind of like female math anxiety, but not just even female math anxiety. I have it in my head that my family is bad at math. So even though I have no negative money stories from my family, I have a negative math story. Um, I have in my head my family's bad at math. You know, like my mom didn't get straight A's. My dad didn't go to university. And then my older brother wasn't so hot at math either. So I took that personally and was like, oh, well, I'm just bad at it. So, you know, I just didn't do so well in math classes. But somehow... The practice SAT is a no-stakes practice test for the exam that helps you get into college. So when I went to take that exam in my junior year, I was like carefree. I took my calculator, I rolled out of bed, I like walked to school, nothing on my mind. I was like, this is no big deal. This is just for me to get familiar with what this test looks like and feels like. I got a perfect score on that math section, guys. Like, what? I can never replicate that again. I have no clue how that happened. And my my reading and my writing skills had already been um, pretty good because that's where I focused a lot for myself personally. Uh, but in combination, that score and the extracurriculars I'd been doing and an application essay, um, all of that culminated into a National Merit Scholarship and I decided to take that and go to Arizona State University, where they offered me $92,000 for the four years that I would be in school. $92,000 at the age of 17. What? And at the time, I didn't think that was such a, like, I didn't celebrate it as if I had just made, like, somebody's annual salary. That's not what went through my head that was like, oh, but that doesn't cover all of room and board, so I'm going to have to cover, like, my living expenses, and then tuition will go up. And I kind of, like, it was a great celebration in the sense that I, like, felt good that I wasn't putting my parents in debt to go to college, that it wasn't going to be a burden, um, and that it was at a school that had a color guard, that had an honors college that had a great business school that I liked and I visited it and I was like, oh, this campus, it's great and it's warm here instead of cold because I did not want to go somewhere cold. Until I looked back just recently on that achievement, I never really thought, oh, that was such a big deal. But if I'm quite honest, in terms of my financial journey, that was a huge deal. A lot of people go to college and are like $200,000 in debt, even if they're doctors, right? Or more than that for doctors and lawyers. And I came out of college without any debt, partly because of this scholarship and partly because my parents helped me pay for my living expenses. And then being Asian, I'm not too close with my parents is how I'll say that. So there were certainly times where I had been disowned by my parents unofficially, right? They would say that I wasn't their daughter or whatever. And that instilled in me the sense that I needed some kind of financial stability, that if they disowned me, they would stop supporting my college. And college was the only way I knew how to become an adult and have like a stable life. Uh, so money was a big deal. And that 
encouraged me to get part-time jobs while I was in school, to go for internships that paid, to do all of these things and save up that money in case my parents were like, nope, we're not paying for anything else for your college anymore. You're on your own. And I was going to finish out that path because that's that was what was instilled in me. Like I remember being, I want to say, younger than nine. I must have been like seven and thinking, oh, after high school, I still have to go to college. So I had like 12 years of school left in my life, something like that. I can't math, guys. Don't do math on me. (laughs) So it was kind of like a given that I would go to college and I would finish college. So if my parents disowned me and I couldn't afford college, I would have to find a way to do it on my own. So this was like the beginning of that journey of not only did I graduate without any debt, but I also graduated with enough money to buy my car almost entirely by myself. I couldn't afford the taxes on top of it. So my mom helped with that. She was so proud. She was telling my brother and my poor brother, um, she's telling my brother, look, your sister bought this car by herself. And of course he's like, what the heck? Like, why do you got to be better than me in this sense? And those kinds of things I was positioned to do because First of all, I was very motivated, right? I wanted to be independent. I needed to be out of my parents' house. I could not go back to my parents' house after college. So I found ways to make sure that I could guarantee that independent life through college. And because college was the Asian parent-approved path, it was also the low-stress path because I totally could have like left the house at 18 and gotten a part-time job at a McDonald's or something and moved in with a whole bunch of other people to be able to afford to live in California and somehow made it. Lots of people do that. But it wasn't an option in my head, partly because of the stress and the drama that would come with it, of like the fights I would have to have with my parents about why I decided to go down this path. It was so much easier to avoid the drama and just go to college and get a good job and be independent and not only have their approval, but also have the distance I needed to become my own person because I definitely grew up with that American sense of like, oh, individualism, freedom, independence, all of those things were a big deal to me, despite uh, constantly hearing about how grateful I had to be uh, to my family. As a first-generation Asian American, I grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in. I considered acting, voice acting, and writing as career options when I was little, but ended up joining corporate America as an IT project manager to take the Asian parent-approved path. The good news is, it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions. And I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spent years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now, I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that, I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. 
I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My Generational Wealth Building Money Mentorship Program is three months of direct access to me and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. You know, back then when you tell me that I needed to be grateful, I didn't get it, right? Like cognitively, I kind of knew, but emotionally, I couldn't handle that. Like being told that I had to feel a certain way. And now I totally get it, right? I'm in my 30s and I appreciate it a lot more, especially being able to look back and realize how much my parents had to go through in order to get me where I am today. So that's step one really in, or step two, honestly, right? Step one was mindset. Like I was gifted a positive mindset. My mom was the one that took care of all the finances in the house. So I had modeled for me that females are good with money. I got none of these money stories where women were supposed to be bad with money, which in America is, you know, a prevalent theory because women weren't allowed to have their own bank accounts or mortgage or anything until the 1950s. So there was a lot of tradition and history and just lack of experience in the matriarchal line around money. So nowadays, whenever I listen to other financial independence podcasts or talk to other people about their money stories, the fact that like our grandmothers weren't allowed to handle the finances as much as we are allowed to today really inhibited and passed down negative money stories for women. And even though I identify as non-binary, clearly I grew up as a female. And even I had never even talked to my parents about the non-binary thing. But like clearly that was still modeled for me that my mom, being the one that was in charge of the investments, she helped us save with coupons, that she did the credit cards and gift cards and all of these things. Like that meant that I came away with a positive money story. So number one for me was that My mom modeled that, and my parents were good with money. We talked about it in the household, so my money mindset was positive. And then I didn't have any debt coming out of college, so that was number two in terms of setting me on the right path in order to graduate by 40. But then after that, you know, I was doing my job. I did put away money for retirement, and I actually got advice a couple times along the way. One time when I was interviewing for an internship, the interviewer took the last 10 minutes of the interview and told me, hey, so you're going to get a full-time job and you should really seriously consider not increasing your cost of living because once you increase your standard of living to a certain stage, you're not going to want to roll it back and scrimp and save or like reduce how big your house is or anything. So he told me that at the end of this interview and I'm over here with my Asian frugal mindset and like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I can continue to live like a college student where half my furniture is really cardboard boxes. And I actually idealized that because that's what my parents told me they did. That my dad said, hey, when we came to America, like we literally took cardboard boxes and some plywood and that was our desk. And so for me, going to college and trying to uh, save money in order to be independent, that was what I did. And I was like, well, I can continue to do that for a few years. It's not a big deal. Uh, and that 
advice really stuck with me for a decade after I had this one passing conversation. And I actually am LinkedIn friends with this guy. So I posted the other day, I was like, hey, Paul, you don't remember this, but you told me this. And this is what has me on track to retire by 40. So I'm glad that I was able to stay in touch with him and tell him that. And he responded. And I'm I'm glad that um, I can express that gratitude. Um, but that and advice from other colleagues who said, hey, when you get raises, you should put the that percentage of a raise straight into your 401k instead of increasing your lifestyle. All of that was completely in line with my upbringing. So I took that advice. I actually followed through on those things. Like starting from 2017, I started maxing out my 401ks at my corporate jobs because uh, I didn't need that cash. I didn't notice it, right? Like if it never hits my bank account, I'm not going to miss it. So I took advantage of that automation and just kept socking away money. And 2017 is actually when I learned about the Financial Independence Retire Early Movement, or FIRE, as it's referred to as an acronym. I discovered that and things started coalescing in my head. I had already bought a condo at 25. The story with that is that I thought I was going to marry my high school sweetheart. And then we didn't. We broke up. And I had cash that I had actually saved up for our wedding because, again, I don't get along with my parents. Um, So I was expecting to have to pay for my wedding on my own. So I had this cash that I had set aside for years, over five years for this wedding and didn't have anything to do with it, right? Like there wasn't a backup plan for a wedding. Like what, what do you make as a backup plan? But um, my friend who was a couple years older was buying a condo for herself. And I was like, oh, that's an idea. I could get a condo. And combine that with the fact that my apartment was going to raise rent by like $100 a month. Um, I was like, yep, we're getting a condo. So I ended up buying a condo at 25 with the cash that I was going to use for my wedding and honeymoon. And that was the beginning of my real estate journey. You know, I didn't really think about it too much. It was a place that I could live in that the rents didn't go up because mortgages are set rates, right? Like my payment is set for the 30 years that I have this mortgage. So the only thing I had to worry about was like utilities, insurance, taxes, and um, and the HOA for this condo. And that was when I was 25. And then a couple of years later, I'm over here learning about the fire movement and I'm learning about how people do it with real estate. I'm learning about how people do it with stocks, about how they do it with businesses and blogs and passive income and all of these things. And I started really making tweaks in my lifestyle and in my money choices in order to optimize that. And then a couple of years later, I, again, I thought I was going to marry someone. And started saving up for that. And that didn't work out again. So at the age of 30, I ended up buying a single family home and moved into that and turned the condo into a rental property and got a roommate for the house. So between the tenant in the rental property and my roommate, I'm living what we call like rent free in the financial independence vernacular, which is a misnomer. It just means that like, I don't have to do anything. I have passive income that is covering the largest fixed expense that I have, which is typically your living expense, right? The cost of your housing is typically your largest expense. So the model for financial independence is reduce your expenses, increase your savings rate, and invest. So rental properties are my investments. I have passive income covering my largest expense, 
that puts me in a great position to not worry so much about whether or not I can cover my expenses, whether or not I need to be putting hours in in order to make money. And that puts me in a great place to start talking more about an abundant life, about making lifestyle choices that don't have to be so constrained, don't have to be so much of a scarcity mindset. And now I run my own business, which also means I'm my own boss and I get to define my hours and how much I charge for the work I do and whether or not I delegate work out to somebody else. All of these things really add up to what I usually refer to as the fact that I get to retire by 40. But what I really mean by that is that I'm work optional now and at 40. Right At 40, I could stop and I could stop doing everything. I could more easily focus on things that don't make money. So I've always had the desire to write a book. And at this point, there's like three books in my head, um, one of which is fiction and the other ones are nonfiction. And I've always wanted to be a voice actress, and now I'm hosting my own podcast, which, again, I actually... I have to fund this podcast myself, guys. This is out of pocket. So this podcast is possible because I had the scarcity mindset and the financial foundations and the positive money mindset and all of these things. Like The fact that this podcast exists is because I'm in a financial position to pay a podcast launch specialist to support this journey of me designing this podcast and building it out and the maintenance that goes into getting a audio engineer to edit it, to get some music done, to do some media collateral, all of those things. Like This is because I'm now in a position where I can afford to do these things. So that's what it looks like for me now. Like the concept that I describe it as being able to retire by 40 is really the freedom to choose to do things that I wouldn't have done otherwise that were certainly not Asian parent approved, right? Like podcasts didn't even exist when my parents were telling me that my career choices were doctor, lawyer, or engineer. Luckily later, my mom added CEO as one of the options. So now I'm CEO of my own business. But all of that to say that like it's possible to do what I did, and it may not be by 40, depending on how old you are listening to this now. But in the time span from 2017 to now, I've bought myself a lot of runway to do what I want to do in a work optional way. And it takes some planning. It takes learning some information about your finances. It takes confronting your finances. And guys, I am totally a spreadsheet nerd, so I will look at my money all day, every day. Uh, I've got tools that help me and I've consumed a lot of content that is readily available on the internet, but it's all there and there are people out here to help you, including myself. So that is essentially the big picture of what it looks like for me when I when people ask me to tell them more about retiring by 40. That's what it really means. And that's not to say that I'll actually stop working at 40. It just means that That's the milestone I have in my head that feels very comfortable to me that I'm 31 now. So in nine years, if I keep doing the things I love and I'm able to exchange that value with others and get compensated for it, that I could very well retire by 40 and I don't know what that looks like. Nine years from now is a long time away and I have no clue what that looks like, whether or not I'll be married or have kids or anything like that. So that's just how I describe where I'm at. And that's what the math says. If you um, know anything about the 4% rule or just multiply your annual expenses by 25 and that's how much you need invested in order to 
feel comfortable that your expenses will be covered by a certain age. And there's lots of formulas and calculators out there, all of those things. But that's what that looks like for me. So I hope that helped you see where opportunities are in your life. Um, I hope that there was something relatable for you, especially if you're like me with immigrant parents that talked about money. And I hope that it also gives you an idea of what it's like to set up generational wealth for your family, because maybe it might not be in the cards for you. Maybe you're not willing to spend that time learning how to have rental properties or trade stocks or anything like that, but you are willing to invest in your children. And I see that very commonly. So I hope that something in my retelling of what my financial journey looks like gives you an idea of what's possible for your family and for yourself. And I'm here if you want to learn more about how to build a more abundant life. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it. Leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey and don't forget to design your abundant life.